Well, good afternoon to you all, and it's a real uh, privilege for me to be able to be part of the GRACE Agenda Conference and also uh, to be invited to uh, this illustrious uh, discussion on your uh, Friday afternoon. Uh, so thank you to uh, Dr. Timothy and also to uh, Pastor Wilson for the invitation to be here. I was given my subject for this evening, and I've been asked to address uh, the issue of uh, social justice. Is uh, social justice just? And uh, so over the next uh, 45 minutes-ish, I want to try and uh, tease out this issue. It's a topical subject because all around us today, uh, both in the church and in the academies, we hear a great deal about social justice. And in fact, even when the term is not used, um, all kinds of concepts and ideas are thrown at us that are related directly to the social justice movement and uh, the ideology uh, which underlies it. So let's begin by thinking uh, about the roots of justice. Is social justice just the roots of justice? Are they political or are they theological? In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 11 through 16, we read these words. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall, not, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Those uh, words, uh, even a generation or so ago, would have been well known uh, to Christians. Every Christian should actually be interested in the subject of justice. Without it, uh, without justice, life can only actually be tyranny, slavery, misery. Uh, and histor historically, largely... Um, or broadly Christianized societies had a keen sense of justice because at the foundation of our culture was the recognition of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who declared himself to be just, who gave his law to Moses, who sent his son into the world as the living Torah, who expounded the law of God on the mountain as the greater Moses, and the one into whose hand all judgment has been committed, according to the Apostle John, chapter 5, verse 22 of his gospel. And in general, law and justice were seen as uh, being involved uh, in each other. The rule of law governing all men as equal before it under God uh, counted for something. It was important, it was significant in our society. As Leviticus 24:22 makes plain, you shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. And here's one of the sources of the origin of the idea of a rule of law, equality before the law. Unlike uh, Islam or even increasingly modern humanistic law, uh, biblical law, Christian law, uh, says that all are equal, should be treated equally before the law. So for many of our evangelical forebears, the, the, pursuit of a, the pursuit of a just society was seen as significant. It was a righteous cause, and where a community or nation was united in that cause, there was a sense of transcendent meaning, and uh, to a degree, a non-coercive unity prevailed in those uh, societies. Right now, we find ourselves in the West living in very ruptured uh, divided societies uh, where um, a conflict um, is all around us. The uh, insightful British essayist going by the uh, pseudonym Theodore Dalrymple 
has pointed out that uh, people who lived in Britain throughout uh, a great battle for justice against injustice, World War II, despite the shortage, the suffering, uh, the loss that they went through, that uh, they don't remember it or didn't remember it as we might expect, with the horror certainly that we might expect them to have remembered it. In large part, he says, this is because of the sense of meaning and purpose that they found together in the struggle for righteousness. Winston Churchill actually called World War II the battle for the survival of Christian civilization. And at the time, for many people in the West, that concept, Christian civilization, mattered. Dalrymple then asks what, why that sense of transcendent purpose and meaning didn't continue after World War II in the peacetime that followed, and his conclusions are very telling. One of them, he says, is that the dominant British intellectuals of the period held and propagated the view that actually only the state, only government, uh, in the, um, of course, government in the biblical view is multifaceted. There's the government of the family and the, the church and uh, the vocations and educational institutions and civil government. Now, when we talk about government, we essentially just mean the state, that the, that the government alone could bring about justice in society, and this could only be accomplished, according to those intellectuals, via some kind of socialism. Justice, they thought, could be grounded politically uh, and not theologically. And as a consequence, social reality and just relations were to be defined not by scripture, but by a new elite, and the results were to be called social justice. Man would recreate a social order, many of them dreamed of a perfect social order, by his own word. The difficulty is when people don't have an immediate sense of personal responsibility for living justly and believe that they can delegate that role to a faceless collective, the seeds of a radical injustice and cultural decline have already been sown. Now, the, the roots of this uh, socialistic uh, self-deception go back to the ancient world, actually, but the organization and codification of this utopian thinking can be traced more recently to the misnamed Enlightenment. Don't forget humanists named these periods of history. Um, and to the 18th century in particular and some of its luminaries. So we had the idea developing that, that man could uh, create a utopian order, a, or re, the re-emergence of this idea anyway, of a utopian vision of equality for social order. One of the luminaries behind this idea was a man named, I'm sure familiar to you students at least, Jean-Jacques Rousseau one of the most odious individuals, I think, to uh, emerge from the pages of European history, one of the first truly modern intellectuals. Uh, I think it was Paul Johnson who referred to him as a professional hypocrite. Um, and he was the famed author of the social contract. Now, David Hume, the British empiricist uh, philosopher, knew him well, and he called him, quote, a monster who saw himself as the only important being in the universe. Voltaire uh, thought him, quote, a monster of vanity and vileness. Pretty good so far. Diderot, after knowing him for many years, described him as, quote, deceitful, vain as Satan, ungrateful, cruel, hypocritical, and full of malice. So you wouldn't want these on the back of a book, would you? The social contract is the... Here's the blurbs on the back. Following Plato, though, Rousseau was a, was a utopian dreamer. And uh, he loved to lecture people on education, family, state, and so on and so forth, and how they should behave. But he actually abandoned all five of his own children in infancy to a hospice where they almost certainly died. But in many ways, his thought paved the way for the French Revolution, uh, influenced the Russian Revolution, and, uh, and played a real, uh, I think, significant role in inspiring both communist and fascist regimes in the 20th century. And he saw the state as the key to social justice. He saw the state as the key to utopia. The uh, 
The historian Paul Johnson has said, and I quote, Rousseau's state is not merely authoritarian, it is also totalitarian, since it orders every aspect of human activity, thought included. Under the social contract, the individual was obliged to alienate himself with all his rights to the whole community, that is the state. He moved the political process to the very center of human existence by making the legislator, who is also a pedagogue, into the new messiah, capable of solving all human problems by creating, a new, by creating new men. It's startling, actually, to read something like that and think about how uh, modern Rousseau is uh, when you think about what's going on in our society uh, right now. His thought has decisively shaped political, social order in our own time, and today's cultural or uh, neo-Marxists who are busy with their ideological subversion and demoralization of the West in the name of social justice actually have Rousseau to think for many of their core ideas. It's amazing. I can't quite understand why he is so wild, widely praised uh, as such a significant uh, and important individual when you actually consider what he taught. Now, true Christian orthodoxy uh, cannot produce, does not produce utopian illusions. The kingdom of God in the Bible is not a utopian concept. And that's because God, in the Christian view, governs history. And in faith, obedience, and confidence, the Christian moves towards God's predestined future in terms of the word of God. The true, the triune sovereign Lord, who by his providence and power sustains all things, is the person who the, in whom the Christian, we as believers, trust in that God, a sovereign Lord, a God of providence predestinating God who governs history. But if you're an unbeliever, if you're bereft of that kind of security in your thinking, the unbeliever has to posit a completely different worldview. Utopianism with its leveling vision of social justice, which denies God's order and uh, sets aside God's predestinating purpose, is actually much more than simply a political idea. It's actually a philosophy of life, and it takes the place of, in their view, the mythical, non-existent God of the Bible. Instead of seeing the human environment, God's creation, as good, though fallen, and under the care of the providence of God, political utopianism sees human beings in a chaotic universe that is perpetually threatening to destroy them, to crush them by its unpredictability. And this is critical, actually, to understanding the, the rise of uh, this religious idea of social justice. Now, all humanistic philosophy built on a worldview of unbelief focuses its attention not on God, as the Christian wants to begin the discussion of justice and social order, but on human beings, upon man himself. An apostate anthropology, that's a view or doctrine of man, with human beings at the center of all things, is actually closely linked to a philosophy of history that dominates in the, the modern Western Academy today among cultural elites. In this philosophy of history, there is actually a very different law idea at work, which gives us a different vision of social order and justice in which human beings in the progress of history are becoming increasingly self-conscious of their freedom, of their absolute autonomy. And when you enter into any discussion today about uh, the um, so-called social justice issues, even things like um, abortion and euthanasia and so forth, the Canada Supreme Court recently struck down all laws against euthanasia and assisted suicide, all of this is done in the name of human dignity, by which they mean human autonomy. And so for influential thinkers and philosophers like the German philosopher Hegel, it was the divine or what he called absolute spirit or God, small g, that was becoming self-conscious through incarnating itself in man in the process of history. 
In other words, and there's lots of interpretations of Hegel, and he is very confusing. Um, God potentially exists as God, small g, becomes self-conscious uh, in human beings, especially as uh, man expresses himself in the state, in the collective. Uh, for other modern thinkers like Feuerbach, what was important was not, as it was for Hegel, the self-consciousness of a vague and pantheistic absolute spirit, which uh, Feuerbach rejected, but man's self-realization. Forget the religious language which Hegel was trying to retain. He says it's man's self-realization. His ability to free himself from his sense of, of uh, alienation, which he thought of as self-alienation, which was, of course, rooted in the idea of ridding yourself of the idea of God and Christian uh, theology, which prevents you from realizing your true freedom. Nature then, or creation, the creation order, is seen in this context as enslaving human beings. And a human, the human beings, the human race, must master nature and find liberation, bringing nature to realize its true purpose. So you see in this a kind of distortion of the Christian idea of man's dominion under God, which leads to a false idea of redemption uh, from an artificial notion of alienation. It's not now due to sin, but due to the illusion of God and Christian revelation. Now, with human beings saving themselves, man's own concept of justice, with man at the center of it, not God, must replace the God-centered creation and God-centered law, which is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So what was going on here is that in the Western world, Christian concepts were being borrowed, but they were being invested with a completely different and a completely new meaning. The Christianity was being jettisoned. So you have this sort of linguistic sleight of hand, and this is part of the reason the social justice movement has any traction at all. Because if a person says that they are against social justice, the immediate implication is that you favor social injustice. And that you are uh, an evil individual, a bigot, a hater of humanity. If you oppose social justice, you must be for injustice. Of course, the idea of social justice um, comes with the, uh, alongside the idea of social and collective guilt as well. Therefore, you must feel guilty due to the uh, nation you're born in, uh, kind of education you have, the color of your skin, etc., etc. So social injustice is what the person who opposes social justice is accused of. Now, in the line of these uh, essentially pantheistic, atheistic thinkers, the most culturally influential example of a philosophy of history that wants to rob Christian resources whilst assaulting Christianity is actually Marxism. And Marxism lies at the root uh, of the social justice movement, a vision very much with, with us today. It's in various modifications, various guises called progressivism or cultural Marxism, and it forms the ideological foundation of what is today called social justice. Marx was actually enthralled by those two individuals I've already mentioned to you. It doesn't matter if you don't know anything about them, Hegel, the German philosopher, and Feuerbach. But the issue for, 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 for Marx was that these men were not radical enough. <laughs> Marx wanted revolutionary social change, and he wanted it now. And this was the goal for Marx of philosophy. He says, too much talking, not enough doing, not enough change not enough action. Marx wanted revolutionary social change, as he said that was the proper goal of philosophy, uh, which he says does not simply, this is a quote, does not simply interpret as all philosophies have done up till now. On the contrary, philosophy changes the state of affairs. Philosophy emancipates. It was not enough to simply rebel against Christian teachings for Marx because, to Marx, Christian thought was the result of Christian social reality and order. 
In other words, the social reality and order comes first. To destroy the former, one had to alter the latter. The human socioeconomic order with its supposedly unjust social structures like the family and capitalist forms of production was the real reason that man hadn't truly become self-conscious and realized his freedom. So Marx wanted to absorb basically all of history into an economic process that he said was moving towards a world revolution, a final total renovation of history. And he believed in that process that he was bringing together reality and reason, essence and existence. The rational was the real. In other words, the ideas could be made real. They could be made, they could be made concrete in the world. You could impose that structure on the social order, irrespective of God and God's law and anything else. The philosophy which could meet the need of the hour, he said, had to be worldly, political, economic, a new kingdom of God, a counterfeit kingdom of God. And because he saw mankind as essentially enslaved to a capitalist mode of production, Marx was preaching a new regeneration, a new liberation, a new justice, a new salvation. Now, you might be thinking, well, we don't live in, uh, you know, what's left of communist Russia or North Korea. But um, <clears throat> have you ever asked yourselves where all the hippies went? Yeah. My, my mother um, was converted to Christianity, of all places, in India. Uh, she was, uh, she went to uh, Swansea University to study English there. She w wasn't raised in a, um, a church-going Christian family. And uh, she, like many in the 60s, wanted enlightenment. And she went seeking enlightenment. You remember the Beatles headed off to India to find their gurus? Well, off went my mum and uh, ended up in a, a city in India called Jaipur uh, on what they called then voluntary service overseas, which was teaching English as a foreign language. But of course, one of the teachers at that school, an Indian lady, happened to be a devout Christian um, who led her to Christ. But if you've never asked yourself where all the hippies went, uh, where did these radicals go from lying under buses, peace, love, lentil soup, and everything else? Well, they went into the university. They took the teaching positions in the universities. They influenced radically our culture. Many of them were very, very gifted people. So there was a new justice, a new salvation, a new liberation being preached, and it's influenced America radically. You're seeing it right now being just played out right in front of you. It's influenced Canada deeply, as well as the United Kingdom. For Marx, history was a struggle. Of course, history is a struggle in the Bible as well. It's a struggle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, between the city of God and the city of man. But for Marx, that struggle was not between those two kingdoms. It was a struggle between the oppressors and the oppressed. The oppressors and the oppressed. The oppressor is epitomized by the Christian order. So Christendom for Marx was the religion peculiar to capitalism. Deliverance comes through a new chosen people, the oppressed, whose exodus he expounded in his communist manifesto, and the signs of the last judgment for him in history are manifest when members of the oppressed, the oppressor, I should say, the oppressor class, that's you, by the way, join the revolutionary class with a universal historical mission. And that mission is to destroy all previous order, all previous securities, including the family and the church and private property. Now, the role of the social justice warrior today, then, is actually that of a counterfeit prophet. And don't they love to shout? To call human beings to recreate themselves. Now for Marx, that was through work, um, without getting into it all, the sort of wage laborer issue. Man was alienated through wage labor. He needed to uh, cease to be alienated by uh, becoming um, reunited with the, his produce, effectively. Redemption comes then with the abolition of private property and man appropriating himself, possessing himself and the fruits of his work. So the, the labor in the new reality is for this universal socioeconomic community 
Social man is born again. He's born again. This is the language they use. Born again. Free from the sin of exploitation. Liberated into welfare liberty. Cradle to grave security. And the culmination of this dream is a utopian society created by faith in the self-liberating power of mankind. So not just Marx, but all the neo-Marxists today, their vision of history is a very, very religious enterprise. It's a religious vision. We mistake the issue, and we, we fail to understand the power of this issue if we see it simply as political ideas. It is a deeply rooted religious vision of redemption. Marx and his modern progressive disciples see exploitation and, and oppression under every single rock. Racial minorities, non-English speakers are oppressed, animals are oppressed, the planet is oppressed. As one of my fellows at uh, the Institute says, and I quote, liberals, progressives, he says, since the French Revolution have engaged in one massive liberation project, what has been called the oppression liberation nexus. The liberal religion has become one of never-ending clawing for the liberation of humanity from every tyranny, real or imagined. The secularists from the unenlightened. Sorry, the secularists must be liberated from the religionists. The parishioners from the clergy. The enlightened from the unenlightened. The citizens from royalty. The poor from the rich. The workers from the capitalists. Blacks from whites. Women from men. Wives from husbands. Children from parents. Debtors from creditors. Employees from employers homosexuals from heterosexuals, convicts from law-abiding citizens, and soon, if the trajectory persists, polygamists from monogamists and pedophiles from prison guards. The great liberation now extends even to non-human nature, the liberation of the environment from a rapacious humanity. And the drive to realize that is social justice. Now, we skip over, of course, somehow, 650,000 unborn American children who are oppressed to death every year. That doesn't count. The atheistic worldview does not provide an objective criterion for making these ethical judgments, of course. But this doesn't dampen their righteous indignation if you ever get caught by one, especially at a university or on a radio interview or in a television context. The idea that the totality of history is characterized by struggle between oppressors and oppressed is a dogmatism. It's a secular prophecy. It's about the meaning of history, and it parades itself today as actually scientific. In Marx's own words, quote, we, we reclaim the whole content of history, but we do not see it as a revelation of God, but only of man. So this vision is a transparently secularized, atheistic messianism. It's a messianic understanding, and it assaults the supposedly mythical Christianity by borrowing its categories of thought. So it's an, it's an, it has an eschatology, it's a prophecy, it's an eschatological faith that copies a Christian philosophy of history in order to give it a cultural power and a cultural force. And so the Marxist criticism of earlier atheists was really that they failed to apply and realize in history the implications of their unbelief. Now, let's try and get to some good news in the last 20 minutes here. I, I've argued that uh, neo-Marxism lives parasitically and perversely off Christian categories of thought. And what I mean there is that because human beings are made in the image of God, it is impossible for us not to think about life and reality in, in non-relational categories. Uh, whenever we think about society and we think about relationship uh, and we think about uh, life and reality, we think in social categories. We think of the other. We inescapably think of ourselves in terms of relationship to other people and many of us to God. Now, for biblical faith, the ultimate foundation of all of reality, of course, is not in some man-made philosophical notion. But we root ourselves in the creative word of God, 
the one who made all things, sustains all things, the, the ontological trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in whose image we have been made. So the foundational starting point for a Christian, ultimately, is the triune God of Scripture and his creation. That's where we begin. That has to be our starting point in social thought as well. We can't have a Christian top layer, a kind of Christian coating on an essentially humanistic cake. And many, many Christians today want to just stick a, an essentially humanistic vision of social order and justice on uh, uh, thinking that that will somehow wed itself neatly and tidily with a Christian vision of reality, but they don't fit. For biblical faith, the ultimate foundation is God himself. Jesus Christ reveals in John 17 the all-personal, all-relational character of God by unveiling something of the eternal love relationship that exists between the members of the Godhead. There's a profound reciprocity of mutual self-giving in God. Jesus declares in his prayer to his Father, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You loved me before the foundation of the world. You see, God is not love because he created the world. So that he had a potentiality for love, which he then realizes or actualizes when he's made someone to love. And if you've been listening to Peter Jones at the conference this week, you'll understand that. That would actually undermine the notion of a transcendent God who's distinct from and truly independent of creation. Rather, God is love within his own being as the Father loves the Son and the Son the Father through the person of the Holy Spirit. One of my colleagues in um, uh, Ravi Zacharias Ministries, when I worked for them some years ago, wonderful Indian scholar, LTJ Chandran, he said this, in God, qualities of personality can be actualized only if there is an actual eternal relationship in him prior to, outside of, and without reference to creation. Only in that way would God be a personal being without being dependent upon his creation. That's a, I understand that's a heady concept. But it's very, very important. It's very, very important. What does this Trinitarian doctrine have to do with justice? Well, the amazing reality is that God is all personal, all relational. And combined with that marvel, we are beings made in his likeness, in his image, created for relationship with God and with our fellow human beings. And that means, in the first place, that the term social justice is a redundancy. All justice is inescapably social. I mean, you know, justice in terms of giving people what they are due requires other people. So it's a redundancy to speak of social justice. Christians don't need to do that. We speak of justice. There would be no need for justice in a monistic, solitary existence if there were no other to, to, toward whom we must act justly. The question is, how then is justice to be, is, is it to be defined? Is it to be defined by God's being and word, or do human ideas define justice? Now, let me just say something a little bit more about when we think about God in relationship to justice and the attributes of God, it's important to remember that the attributes of God are equally ultimate. And that helps us with those who belong to the God is love brigade who don't seem to see any other attribute in God. That is to say, we can't pit the communicable attributes of God off against each other as though one is more basic to God's nature than the others. We can't collapse the divine attributes into one solitary virtue in a reductionistic fashion. Oh, come on, God is love, just, we just have to be loving, which becomes then a vague and contentless principle. All the attributes of God are irreducible aspects of his being and express the nature of the relationship that the persons of the Godhead sustain to each other. Justice is actually another expression of the covenant love that exists between the persons of the Trinity. It means God's law is not arbitrary. You know, in Christian theology, we don't say that the law is above God, neither is it merely arbitrary under God. It's an expression of his character and his nature. 
John tells us that God is love. And that means that in the end, nothing that God does is unloving in the final analysis. Nothing that God says, nothing he teaches in his righteous word is unloving. Justice can't be pitted. Righteousness can't be pitted against love. This is why St. Paul is able to say in Romans 13, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love, if you want to know what love is, is the fulfilling of the law. Now that demolishes a evangelical shibboleth that you can somehow set God's law off against God's love. That it's not loving to affirm God's law. And so the Trinity actually provides for us the proper foundation for justice as within the Godhead each member gives the other person their due as God. Scripture says the Father glorifies the Son and the Son glorifies the Father. Each gives the other their due. That's justice. Moreover, in John 14, 16, and 16, 7, Jesus assures the disciples that it is to their advantage that he goes back to the Father so that he can send another helper. One the same as himself, of equal quality. So Jesus designates the Holy Spirit as God, in other words, who is on the one hand truly other, that is distinct from the Son, and yet of the same kind in the unity of God's being. His role, because he is God, will be to reveal Christ to the world in the absence of the personal presence of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Thus Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So, in God's tripersonal being, each person of the Trinity receives their due as an aspect of their communal love. That's the foundation of of justice. Mutual self-glorification. And then with respect to our redemption, with respect to our salvation, in the counsel of God's sovereign will, an agreement is made that the Son will render to the Father his due by what? Making restitution for the sins of the people. And there's the essence of justice right there. Restitution. The Son gives justice to the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit, affecting our justification by interposing his blood. So actually, both God's being and God's saving acts, we see in them that justice is grounded in the very character, nature, and work of God. And the implication of this is that our social nature and responsibilities are basic to what it means to be made in God's image, to give others their due. To be truly Christian then means to live justly in the societies where God has in his providence placed us. Justice for the Christian is not a social convention It's not arbitrary. It cannot be reduced to historicism, to this notion, well, different ideas just arise in history and are dominant for a while, and then they pass away and they're gone. And so our idea of justice in the Christian world has had its time, and it's disappearing in history, and now something else is coming along uh, to replace it. No, justice in its foundation rests in God and the eternal community of the Godhead. Justice then essentially means to render each person his or her due, and if they have not received it, an injustice has occurred. How do we know what is due a person? Well, in Scripture, sometimes what is due is determined by who the person is. Your parents, governing authorities, Christian leaders, etc. At other times, what is due is established in terms of what a person does. Elders in the church who rule well are to be accorded double honor. 
Murderers and criminals are to be dealt with in terms of what they do against persons and property. But at its root, justice is always refers us back to God. If we love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength, we will of necessity love his image bearer. Love your neighbor as yourself. Giving to the poor, actually, to show you how this is always related back to God, giving to the poor in Scripture is a form of giving to God. It's not something we do because they belong to some identified oppressed group called the poor, some abstract group, nor because they've done something to merit it, but because God's gracious law requires that we help those in need. The principle of justice applies to our relationship with God and not only to our relationship with other people. So, for example, in terms of who God is, think about tithing to God. I'm sure all of you students are already tithing. Think about it now, because you won't think about it later. You know, think about it when you've got no money, because then when you've got some money, you'll still be doing it. The tithe is due. The tithe is, is God's due. And to withhold the tithe, the Bible said, is, says is theft from God. Justice is covenantal. God's covenant law expresses what is basic to his own being. Now, those roots of justice have been rejected in these last few minutes. Back in the third century, there was a heretic named Arius and the Arians who followed him. And they denied this relational doctrine of the Trinity that I've been expounding to you. They spoke not of um, God as father, or at least rarely, They denied the eternal deity of Christ. They argued instead that the Son of God was a creature. There was a time when God the Son was not, in other words. And actually, Arius was really the father of all liberal theology. Athanasius regarded him as a mythologizer who was projecting his own image, his own idea onto God. And actually, the Nicene Creed was formulated in part to counter the Arian heresy, for those of you who are studying theology. What is important to notice about any rejection of the roots of justice in God's being is the outcome can only be a mythologizing of God, and what emerges then is a mythic justice. If you have a mythologized idea about God, and justice must be grounded in a divinity concept, then you get a mythic justice. Once the Trinity is rejected, the working presupposition of thought becomes that if there is a God, he is unknown. He's not revealed himself. He's not revealed himself in the eternal Son by the eternal Spirit as Father. That means that if God is so transcendent, wholly other, that he is unknown then we can only explore the recesses of our inner experience, the recesses of our spirituality, to find language and images to account for this numinous reality of religious experience that we call morality and the vague idea of God. And actually the proliferation of anti-Trinitarian thought in liberal quarters, including areas of evangelicalism, it's subtled the emphasis on the eternal sonship and lordship of Christ, has led to a preoccupation with the self. And this is what always comes out in these ideas of social justice, a preoccupation with the self. Christianity is gradually paganized as merely one means to self-realization and fulfillment. Devotees of This philosophy call out for liberation and social justice, but the liberation they seek is from the living God, and the justice they pursue demands what is not due to them, because they have a mythical conception of God. So this neo-Gnostic world, in that world, the self increasingly becomes identified, actually, with God, with the divinity concept. So the feminist starts to say, we must pray to our mother in heaven. That's an expression of justice for women. And the queer theologian begins to read homoeroticism into the New Testament and demands a just reading of the text. God is remade in man's fallen image and pressed into the service of sinful sexual desires so that one of the main advocates of social justice in the area of sexuality today is the Church of England. 
And these people have the temerity then to call for the enforcement of their new social justice in terms of the idol they've constructed in their own consciousness, that you must now worship this idol. Their religion descends quickly into little more than a fertility cult or the Gnosticism encountered by the early church with their hermaphroditic and androgynous deities. On this view, justice is no longer revelational of God's being, but of man's self-expression. So you define yourself. You identify yourself. You define yourself. This is not about an embodying of mutual self-giving, a reciprocity, but is about total autonomy, and in particular, freedom from any restraints placed upon them by God, the God of Scripture. This liberation is demanded as though the person is an oppressed victim of nature and circumstance. They're not sinners. Theology is carried on. People still use theological terms. But the, the terms of, but in terms of an unknown God, you have interest group theology that emerges. So instead of an interest broadly in biblical theology, the issue becomes special interest group theology, which emerge as expressions of social justice, equalizing everything, calling for God to be interpreted in terms of their self-understanding. In this way, then, God and justice are reimagined, in, not in Trinitarian terms, but in monistic terms. A monistic justice emerges in which all hierarchical relationships which reflect God are destroyed and leveled. Creational distinctions must be denied. Covenantal love must be replaced by revolutionary power. And this then becomes the basis of a political ideology that enforces itself and its chosen ends with a kind of totalitarian reach in the name of justice. And people think, I can't resist that because then I will be an intolerant, unjust, bigoted individual. As Colin Gunton has rightly stated it, nice, polite Westerners may project a deity who is moderately feminist and in favor of ecological responsibility. But if the matter is down to the one who projects, there is no end to the demons which can be set loose. Salvation depends on the unflinching affirmation that the God who meets us in the Son and the Spirit is the only God there is. And this is why this is so basic and foundational to social justice. It is critical, critical because our beliefs about God and our relationship to the divine will shape our understanding of the social world and they'll shape our understanding of our relationship to others. And I will be done in about 120 seconds, so just bear with me for, before the trap door opens up. For the Christian faith, because of who God is, an absolute person distinct from his creation, there's only an ethical or covenantal community between man and God. There's no metaphysical community between you and God. When you become a Christian, you don't become, uh, when scripture tells us that um, we share the divine image, uh, and when we're brought into relationship with God, we don't become God, as in paganism. But as reflected in the Godhead at the human level, in Christianity, real distinctions are maintained, and we remain distinct and particular as human beings, even though we are united by virtue of our creation in God's image as the human family. In our salvation, actually, we become part of a new humanity. There is a unity. There is a kingdom. It's a unity, a new humanity in Christ, and we have a communion that's by grace. But we're not one in substance. The distinctions between us are not destroyed. As fellow Christians and brothers and sisters, we don't lose our identity. We don't lose our sex. Real distinctions in gifting and ability, roles and responsibilities, offices and authority don't disappear. We're covenantally one. We're not metaphysically one. This means the biblical view of justice, friends, is not about equalizing, unifying, leveling all things so that distinctions and hierarchies are destroyed to bring about social or for some this metaphysical oneness in which even male and female are considered social constructions only to be overcome and resolved by some sort of androgynous ideal. 
Rather, justice is giving to each their due in accordance with their nature, which is created and defined by God and outlined in his word. And this doesn't mean there's not an equal value of all people made in the image of God. Rather, it emphasizes the need for plurality as the indispensable ground for unity in a real diversity, which is what the term university actually means. So biblical justice does not aim at the destruction of diversity, but a covenantal or relational unity with real diversity based on the true nature of things as God has made them. Human society and its view of justice will be a reflection in the end of what a community believes about the nature and character of God. Will it be based on this idolatrous mythologizing, productive of an unknown God? Or will it be based on the revelation of God himself in the Trinity? Will it be man's justice expressed as the unification of society in an egalitarian and equalitarian order? Revolution of social justice, real distinctions destroyed, or will it be grounded in the eternal just society of God himself? Justice is social because God is a society. God himself is a just community, and he's placed us in family and community to render to all their due in terms of who God has made each one to be. And so in mutual self-giving, Patterned after that divine reciprocity, we set forth now in history the life of the kingdom of God, of the new Jerusalem. And God's codified that for us in scripture so that we can see in concrete terms what his word requires, what he requires of us. And so we approach true justice in our lives and social order when we model ourselves on the divine community and say to the father with the eternal son made flesh, not my will, but yours be done.